Grand. Okay, well, I hope I can say something helpful to you uh, in the next uh, 20, 30 minutes on this, and we'll have some time for Q&A as well before we have to get back to the main plenary. Uh, I'm really covering two topics in one, uh, about uh, particularity and exclusivity, uh, claiming that Christianity is true uh, in a sort of uh, pluralistic context, as they say, and also, what about the exclusive claims of Christ vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, salvation? So I'm calling this uh, the particular and exclusive truth about a particular and exclusive Christ. Uh, you can see on the screen here uh, my website address, which if you want to jot down, you can go to that for lots of free resources and information about my books, YouTube channel, podcast, etc. Uh, for future reference. I'm going to use uh, particularism uh, to denote uh, a belief in the exclusive authenticity of one's own religious tradition, uh, thinking that your tradition of religion is true or has more truth than all of the others. Uh, that term is also confusingly sometimes used to mean what I'm going to mean by exclusivism or restrictivism, that being the view that people capable of trusting Christ for salvation can only be saved by exercising an explicit faith, trust in Christ. What about people who aren't capable of doing that, you might ask, such as small babies or uh, mentally disabled people who have very severe conditions, etc., or uh, if you have Alzheimer's or something? Uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, we might explore that in the questions, but I'm not going to directly go into that, although it's a related topic, obviously. So let's start with Christian particularism and a couple of Bible verses here. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Peter in Acts 4, 12, saying, there is no salvation by anyone else. For there's no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved, or uh, by whom it behooves us to be saved, some translation would put it. Now, uh, if I put these pictures up on the screen, you've been following the news recently, you will know what this is about. The inauguration pictures from uh, 2009 and 2017 in America, uh, where recently the White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, uh, said that the uh, 2017 uh, inauguration had the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration period, both in person and around the globe, and various uh, news services quickly put up these uh, aerial photographs disproving the claim. Um, we live in a world where we know that truth matters, actually. Whatever uh, people may profess about uh, certain postmodern attitudes towards truth and so on, uh, people become a laughing stock very quickly, uh, if they say things that are obviously uh, false, uh, truth uh, matters uh, in a press secretary uh, and in uh, other contexts as well, including religious contexts. You may uh, know uh, the poet Steve Turner in his poem Creed, this little section from his poem Creed. It says, Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. We believe that he was a good teacher of morals, but we believe that his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one we read was. 
They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ in matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. I think that sums it up quite neatly. (laughs) Well, why single out uh, Christianity uh, for criticism for claiming to be true? All truth claims are, by definition, particular and narrow and exclusive. They exclude uh, things that are false, uh, things that contradict what is claimed to be true, at least. Philosopher Paul Copan says, if you say that the Christian view is bad because it's exclusive, then you are also, at that exact moment, doing the very thing that you're saying is bad. You have to be exclusive to say that something is bad. Since you exclude it from being good by calling it bad. So if you say, it's bad to think that your Christian religion is true, that's exclusive and that's wrong, well, that person making that criticism uh, actually falls under their own criticism. The uh, Thomas Aquinas here, famous theologian, philosopher of the faith, noted that from the exception that just, the, the mere exception that there is a fact, the truths of logical thought immediately follow. A, a something, whatever that thing is, is a something rather than a nothing. Hence, along with the possibility of affirmation, saying, you know, X is the case, there instantly and necessarily enters the possibility of contradicting that claim of saying no it isn't and well it either is or it isn't the reality of being itself entails the nature of truth which is correspondence with being telling it like it is and falsehood which is the contradiction of being telling it like it's not so This uh, shouldn't get too far away from you, I hope, if I diagram it with a cat on a mat. In in, uh, picture 1.1 here, the cat is on the mat, tick. Uh, The statement, the truth claim, the cat is on the mat, is true because and only because the cat is indeed, as you can see, on the mat. Uh, The cat being on the mat is the truth, the fact, the reality, and the claim is true because it corresponds to the reality. In 1.2, the statement the cat is on the mat is not true, it is false, because the cat, as you can see, is not on the mat. So C.S. Lewis said, reality is that about which truth is. And Aristotle's definition of the uh, about reality, meaning of truth, uh, can be given usefully in the English language in words of one syllable. If one says of what is, that it is, or of what is not, that it is not, he speaks the truth. But if one says of what is, that it is not, or what is not, that it is, he does not speak the truth. Pay attention, Sean Spicer. So the basic laws of reason revealed by the recognition that there is and is include things like the law of non-contradiction, that nothing can both be and not be in the same sense at the same time. So if Christianity is true, 
then anything that contradicts it must be false. Or the law of the excluded middle. Everything must either be or not be. So Christianity is either true or false. On the law of identity, a thing is identical to itself. So if Christianity is uh, only identical with itself, it's not the same as other religions. That's why there are other religions rather than Christianity. (laughs) So these kind of claims are just eminently rational. Not all faiths would agree. Uh, I got this from a Baha'i faith website. They say that religious truth is not absolute, but relative. All the great religions of the world are divine in origin, but their basic principles are in complete harmony. Their aims and purposes are one and the same. Their teachings are but facets of one truth. Their functions complementary. They differ only in non-essential aspects of their doctrines. They have this uh, picture with the, the image of one light, many lamps. One light going to the many kind of colours of the spectrum here. The essence of all is one and the same. Well, that's just patently not true. Um, we have this uh, famous image of uh, God at the top of the mountain and all religions of different paths up the mountain. But hey, you take your path, I'll take my path. We'll all get to the top of the mountain to God in our own ways. So don't be too, you know, excuse to say, you've got to use my path. You could use any path you like. We're, we're all going to the same thing. Except not all religions even believe that there is a God. So they can't think that there are a path there. If they are a path to God, it's by accident rather than by design. Um, or you may know the image of the, uh, the blind men and the elephant. As the blind men try to determine what an elephant is like, one feels the trunk and says, well, an elephant is like a snake. Another feels the tail and says, ooh, an elephant's like a rope. And another feels the leg and says, oh, an elephant is like a tree trunk. And of course, as the parable goes, they're all partially right because they're only finding part of the truth. And isn't that really like religions? They've all got part of the truth. That might seem reasonable at first glance. For a person to claim that their religion is right and all others is wrong might seem arrogant. Isn't it more humble to simply claim that all religions are tapping into the same truth ultimately? But such a position commits a self-exception fallacy. While the analogy here argues that all religions only understand part of the elephant, as it were, The person giving the analogy is claiming to understand the whole elephant. They can see the elephant that the blind men of all the religions can't see. So who's making the arrogant claim now? Those who use such an analogy are really claiming that all the particular religious views are fundamentally wrong. They think they've got the truth, but they've only got a limited part of it, and I've got the whole truth, such a person is thinking. So they themselves are making a particular truth claim, but just one that claims not to be particular. (laughs) The Indian philosopher, and if I pronounce this correctly, give me a cheer, uh, Swami Vaikananda, (laughs) thank you, 
says, we, we Hindus, accept all religions to be true. And the question that immediately springs to my mind is, then what is my uh, incentive to become a, a Hindu? Why be a Hindu? Um, all religions, including Hinduism, actually make truth claims that contradict the claims of the other religions and worldview positions. At least if you're a Christian, C.S. Lewis noted, uh, you can have the maximum sort of uh, uh, generosity towards other views possible. He said, when I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most, i.e. that the majority of humans at least do believe in a God. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. Other viewpoints can be more or less close to the truth represented in Christianity. This is Charles Templeton. It says, Christians are a small minority of the world. Approximately four out of every five people on the face of the earth believe in gods other than the Christian God. The more than five billion people who live on the earth revere and worship other gods, other viewpoints. Are we to believe that only Christians are right? Says the man arguing as a representative for a viewpoint that's only held by some five, six percent maybe of the world population, atheism. Actually, if we put the statistics up, this is a little old, but this is from 2005. Um, but these statistics would show that it's more like two out of three people don't believe in the Christian God. About a third of people claim to. Only 8% of the world population are non-theists. And atheists like Charles are an even smaller percentage of that percentage, of course. So, at two, if he thinks that's a good criticism of Christianity... Well, it's even more criticism of his own view. Found on an atheist website this quote. Exclusivity is petty and dangerous. People get upset when told that their religion is not as good as the next guy's. And that's why Jews and Muslims and Christians have been slaughtering each other over Palestine for centuries. And anyone who picks that out in particular. Uh, so it occurs to me that exclusivity runs contrary to the general moral character of Christ, as people tend to portray him anyway. I can't imagine him being particularly happy with his followers preaching it with such vehemence. Of course, we should always speak the truth in love, with gentleness, as uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says, and so on. But as William Lane Craig, Christian philosopher, replies to this kind of view, says that's just a sort of textbook example of the, the fallacy known as an argument ad hominem, against the person rather than the viewpoint. It's trying to invalidate a position by attacking the character of those who hold it. That's a fallacy because the truth of a position is independent of the moral qualities of those who believe it, whether they are. They might be narrow and vehement and arrogant and people who kill other people and so on, but they might still be right, uh, even if that, that is their moral qualities. Even if a Christian particularist were arrogant and immoral, that wouldn't disprove their view. Not only that, but why think that arrogance and immorality are necessary conditions of being a particularist? I suppose I've done all I can to discover the religious truth, and I'm, I'm convinced that Christianity is true, and so I embrace Christian faith 
as an undeserved gift of God? Am I therefore arrogant and immoral just for believing what I sincerely think is true? Even more fundamentally, says Craig, the objection is, again, it's a double-edged sword. The pluralist also believes that his views are right and that all those adherents of those particularist religious traditions are wrong to have those views. If holding to a view that many others disagree with means you're arrogant and immoral, then the pluralist would be convicted of arrogance and immorality. So we find time and time again that these criticisms of holding to a particular view as being true uh, end up sawing off the branch that they're sitting on, as it were. It's frequently alleged that particularism can't be correct because religious beliefs are culturally relative, notes Craig. Um, If a Christian believer had been born in Pakistan, he would most likely have grown up a Muslim. But again, that's another fallacy called the genetic fallacy, trying to invalidate a position by criticising the way in which a person came to hold that position. But the fact that your belief depends on where and when you were born has no relevance to the truth of those beliefs. I mean, if you'd been born in ancient Greece, you would probably have believed that the sun orbits the earth. Does that imply that your modern-day belief that the earth orbits the sun is therefore false or unjustified? Because you're holding that belief is linked to where and when you happen to have grown up. Of course not. Now, that's sort of one category of question, and I think it sort of feels related to this exclusivism question, but I think that's a bigger question. Uh, the Reverend Nicky Gumbel, or a quote later, asks, if we can only be saved through Jesus, are all the rest damned? Do people fail to obtain salvation due to non- non-culpable ignorance? Dr. Steve McSwain, uh, found online, says, hell no longer works for me, because if people go there just because they've not believed correctly or have mistakenly believed the wrong thing, I can't imagine how heaven would be heaven to me. I find a lot of uh, non-Christians have this view that within the Christian uh, religion, the idea is that you need to believe the right thing in order to go to the right place. Well, Abraham's rhetorical questions brings to mind at this point, (coughs) will not the judge judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25, the expected Our answer, of course, is, well, of course he will. He's God. He is, by definition, good. Even if we're not sure how he will arrange to be just in these matters, we know that he must be going to be just. But it's not ignorance or wrong beliefs, but rather culpable rejection of truth that the Bible says determines where you end up. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. The coming of the lawless one at the end of days is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who refused to love the truth that would save them. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, 12. Talking about all may come under judgment who have refused to believe the truth and have taken pleasure in unrighteousness, it's hardness of heart, refusing to believe, not just 
happening to have the wrong belief because of circumstances beyond your control. And indeed, the Bible talks about a universal scope of God's desire to save. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. Or Romans 11.32, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, he desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but desires that all should reach repentance. So there's a universal scope of God's desire to save. How do we reconcile these uh, particularist exclusive claims and this universal desire to save? Nicky Gumbel again, author of the Alpha Course, of course. He notes it's possible to be saved by grace through faith even if someone has never heard of Jesus. He says, uh, quotes Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham clearly had a good relationship with God on the basis of being forgiven because of his faith. Abraham and, and David, for example, did not have the advantage that we have of knowing how it is possible to be forgiven. They didn't have the assurance that we have as a result of knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nevertheless, Paul tells us that they were justified by faith, says Gumbel. He goes on. Jesus tells us in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that the tax collector who said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, went home justified before God. So have a look at Luke 18, 9 to 14. Surely, says Gumbel, the same is true for anyone today who's not heard of Jesus, but who did what that tax collector did. This is uh, from his chapter on this issue in his uh, little book, Searching Issues, which is a kind of apologetics companion book to the Alpha Course book. Well, I find that attractive, but I have some issues with it. I want to nuance it and go in a different direction with it. Um, Inclusivism, which is really this idea that Gumbel is putting forward here, teaches that salvation, we'll come back to this term, salvation in Christ is available through means other than explicit faith in Christ. Gumbel would say it's because of what Christ does on the cross. But people don't have to know that that's how they're being saved in order to be saved. That's how he puts it. Exclusivism or restrictivism, as we said earlier, is the view that people capable of trusting in Christ can only be saved by explicit faith in Christ. And you can, uh, from the inclusivist viewpoint, you might look at um, stories like the story of Cornelius in Acts 10, 1 to 48. Just a quick quote from there. When the Apostle Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. But salvation isn't a univocal term. I mean, we even uh, would speak in terms of we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, and those are different things. There is, I think, a fullness of salvation that's only to be found in Christ, according to the Bible. Look at Acts 19, 1-6, or Romans 10, 1-21. 
Uh, I've got this whole PowerPoint uh, emailed through to someone on the, on the committee, I think, so it should be available if you want it later for, for notes. What about the, the old and new covenant structure as well? Uh, I've got passages here from uh, Hebrews uh, 8 and, and 9 talking about the new covenant. Um, Christ died to, as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Um, he's a mediator superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. So I think it's interesting to observe that, say, um, Hebrews 11 here is talking about the, the Old Testament saints and then said that God had planned something better for us in the, the New Testament era so that only together with us would they be made perfect. John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. You are all one in, in Jesus Christ. Have a look at uh, those passages from Revelation. Um, I think we could say that everyone in the new heavens and the new earth is going to be a Christian. It's not like there'll be the Jews, the Jewish bit of heaven, and the Christian bit of heaven. Uh, so there must be, it seems to me, on those kind of bases, some sort of post-mortem way in which those saved, but not in the fullness of salvation available in Christ, under the old covenant kind of structure, enter into the full salvation of the new covenant. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the concept of post-mortem, or sometimes theologically called eschatological evangelism, seems a very natural extension of that kind of line of thought. Um, some people will interpret 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20 in a way that fits in with this, and I think it's a plausible interpretation of the passage at least, uh, talking about Christ uh, put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison after they were disobedient long ago when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. Uh, and uh, Peter there picking out a generation that for the Jews was the, was the generation of the worst of the worst. And perhaps he is saying there that uh, after uh, Christ's crucifixion, uh, before or after his resurrection, went and preached the gospel to these people to give them an opportunity to join into uh, the new covenant. It's a, a tradition that's become known as the harrowing of hell, or, or Hades, would be a better translation of the word. Uh, we know from books like Two Maccabees uh, that first century Jews sometimes had a belief in the possibility of post-mortem forgiveness. This uh, harrowing of Hades tradition and interpretation of this passage uh, kind of was taught by several theologians of the early church. Uh, I've put a list of them up there. Um, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church mentions it, picking up on the phrase in the Apostles' Creed about he descended into hell. The Eastern Orthodox Church also celebrates the, the harrowing of hell uh, annually. And it's uh, a view, at least post-mortem evangelism, whether linked to this passage or not, has been supported by a number of contemporary Christian scholars. So the idea of uh, an opportunity for salvation in the afterlife before judgment and the creation of the new heavens and new earth is a very common Christian belief. It's a very traditional Christian belief. It does fit the scriptural data of both particularism 
and God's universal salvific desire. And it does have more explicit scriptural roots than that, although I want to put this in italic warning points, this is controversial as an uh, interpretation of the passage. Just one uh, extra view um, before I wrap up. Uh, William Lane Craig, uh, building on a, a view of God's knowledge called middle knowledge, which is incredibly philosophically complex, and I'm not going to go into it unless you ask me, uh, puts forward this idea, that God uh, has kind of providentially arranged the world so that it has an optimal balance between the number of people who end up being saved and those who are lost. That's what he kind of aims at in creating the world. And that those people who never hear the gospel and who are lost are people that God knows would not have believed in him even if they had heard the gospel. Okay, uh, it's just a summary of his view. Uh, to go into it more, let me I'll reference you to his website, reasonablefaith.org, and particularly to his book, The Only Wise God, which is a sort of... Uh, defense of this view of middle knowledge, the idea that God not only knows what people will do in the future, but what people would do in this or that circumstance in which they might be placed, but they never actually end up in. Uh, And using this knowledge of what people would freely choose to do in different circumstances in which he could create them, he can use that to providentially order the world uh, in this kind of a way. Um, such a thesis might, any, in any case, be compatible with a belief in post-mortem evangelism. So in conclusion, particularly to this uh, exclusivist question, which I think is the more uh, weighty and significant issue, um, my first reply would simply be to say that God is by definition good and just. Look at Abraham's question. Even if I'm, I don't know how God is going to arranged to be just to people who never hear about Jesus or who die before they're old enough to understand or whatever. I know from revelation and and experience and so on that God is good and is just, and I'm sure he's able to sort it out. I can point to lots of biblical passages that show that God wants everyone to be saved. He's not sitting up there trying to trip people up. It's not just for, for, for... being ignorant through no fault of their own. It's not just through happening to have the wrong belief that God sends you to hell. It's because you stubbornly refuse to be saved and actually asking for God to kind of take you to heaven and save you in the Christian sense, even when you don't want to, is a bit like asking God to be a man who uh, forces you to marry him even though you don't want to. So that would actually, put it in those terms, it's like he wants you to freely get engaged to him. God is not about forced spiritual marriage. Uh, I think that's a a good kind of perspective to kind of put on it. Um, There is, uh, many people would uh, support this idea of, of inclusivism, and you can kind of see some of the biblical roots of that. To my mind, it seems to be at least sort of a half truth when we recognize that maybe our concept of being saved and salvation is not a univocal term, uh, and we think in terms of the two covenants and so on. There's Bill Craig's um, defense of the middle knowledge perspective for those who are really into their modal logic. 
Uh, and there are, I think, uh, a defensible view of post-mortem evangelism, although none of these particular answers on how God arranges to be just in this matter have particularly strong and explicit scriptural warrant, as it were. And that's why, you know, equally sincere, well-meaning Christians argue with one another over whether inclusivism is true, and whether post-mortem evangelism is true, and whether, whether middle knowledge is true, and so on. Um, but we all agree uh, that God is good, God wants to save everyone, and God doesn't condemn anyone uh, for non-culpable ignorance. Thank you. So... Do we have a, a few minutes for questions that you may have? If not, I'll, I'll hang around for a while and you can grab me later. Um, I've got a few resources up here as well. Um, John Sanders' book, No Other Name, is very uh, good. And there's a couple of these sort of uh, Christian debate books where you have people, Christians, who represent different viewpoints on issues, uh, talk about... Uh, Salvation in a Pluralistic World, or uh, What About Those Who Have Never Heard, edited by John Sanders again. <laughs>